Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good afternoon to everyone who is watching from home. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pastor Jody here at Trinity Reformed Church. It's my privilege today to bring God's Word and to open it up for us. And I've chosen as uh, an opening passage to read again the words of Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6, which were our assurance of pardon. We should know them well by now as a church family because we've been working to memorize these words and hide them in our heart. And we've also been working through this chapter verse by verse in daily devotions in our homes. But I'm going to read them again for us now. But he... Speaking of Jesus, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the prophet Isaiah wrote those words, over 700 years before Jesus even came in the flesh. And it's, of course, a prophecy about him. And as a prophecy, it captures the very essence of his mission here on earth. Not just the essence of his mission, but the central doctrine, the core of the gospel and of our faith. That core, that central doctrine, is the penal substitutionary atonement. The truth that Jesus came to suffer and die, not just to suffer and die, to suffer and die in our place, to take upon himself the punishment that was due for our sins. Jesus offered himself up to his Father, body and soul, put himself on the altar, and was willing to be spent and sacrificed to pay for the sins of his people, for your sins and for my sins. Would you think about your sin for a minute? Call it to mind. Think about your pride, your censoriousness, your hatred of others, which Jesus calls murder in your heart, your rebellion against authority, your discontent, your ingratitude, your lying tongue, your drunkenness, your rage, your lust. Think about your sin. It's not fun to think about your sin, is it? It's not easy to think about those kinds of things. We tend to suppress thoughts of our sin. We, we don't want to think about how shameful it is, and so we hide it from our, even our own, not just from others, but from our own consciousness as much as, much as we can. But the sufferings of Jesus that we've read about in John 19, that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 53, the sufferings that he underwent, call us to take a, a long, hard look at our sin. And we can learn a lot about our sin by looking at the sufferings of Jesus. We sang these words earlier, and stricken, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. You who think of sin but lightly nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word 
the Lord's anointed Son of Man and Son of God. Looking at Jesus and his suffering here on the cross, as it, which is our privilege to do, especially today, we have to look at our sin. If you're thinking about Jesus this Easter season without thinking about your sin, then you're not thinking about Jesus. And certainly we can't think of Jesus' sufferings at Calvary without thinking of our sins. It's good for us and necessary to consider our sinfulness as we think about the sufferings that Jesus underwent. It sobers us, and sobriety is good. Jesus himself, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, invites us to look at his suffering and to consider how horrible that the pain he underwent was and to compare it to our own. He says through the prophet, Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. The NASB translates that word sorrow, pain. See if there's any pain like unto my pain, says Jesus. We're going through a painful time as a church and as a nation, aren't we? It's a time that God has given us to humble ourselves, to pray and seek his face and to turn from our wicked ways. One very excellent way to humble ourselves in this time and on this day, Good Friday, here in the midst of a pandemic and quarantine, is to look at the sorrows of Jesus and to attest together that there really is no sorrow like his sorrow. Our own sorrows, whatever they may be, pale in comparison to his. So I want us to spend just a few minutes here considering the sorrows, the pains that our Savior went through for us. What were the pains and the sufferings that he endured? Well, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His whole life, really, is a life of sorrow, and you can, we could open that up. But today we're going to just look at the chain of events that start to unfold in the last hours of his life, a time in his life that we call his passion. So the night before his death, even before he was arrested and put on trial, his passion began as he looked into the future with perfect knowledge and knew what was about to unfold, what it would feel like, what he was to undergo. And he was so filled with anxiety and dread about it that in prayer to God, sweat poured from his brow like drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says in Luke 22, verse 44, that being in agony... He was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Have you been feeling anxious or stressed out? Have you ever felt anxiety like this, though, where you um, are so perplexed, so troubled, that your sweat is pouring down you like drops of blood? Probably not very many of us have been in a situation or experienced that. Um, Hebrew, I thought of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, where the writer of Hebrews says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Jesus, even before any of his physical sufferings came about, as he considered what he was going through, was filled with dread and was filled with the most intense anxiety. He was suffering already just at the thought of what would befall him the next day. And he prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. 
And praise be to God, Jesus brought his aversion to suffering and his dread into submission to his Father's will, saying, yet not as I will, but your will be done. So the first part of Jesus' sufferings is that they were so great, he suffered at the very thought of them as he saw them, the time for them drawing near. But Jesus then also faced the rejection of his own people. Many of us have faced rejection from friends um, in some form or other. We've been hurt by others. There's all kinds of ways we suffer at the hands of others. But Jesus was rejected by his people. There's many occurrences of this or examples of this in the account of his passion. First of all, we see that he was betrayed by his uh, disciple and companion for three years, uh, Judas. Judas betrayed him with a kiss. It says in Matthew 26, verse 48, Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Have you ever heard of the expression, painting the target? It's often used as a, in, in the military. Our military guides missiles and bombs to specific targets by means of lasers. Sometimes, and often, some, uh, somebody's on the ground near the target, um, sighting a laser, pointing a laser at the target, and he is said to be painting the target, which then directs the, the missiles and the bombs to, to find it. So Jesus was targeted by the Jewish leaders, and Judas, his friend and companion of three years, was painting the target for them. They were perhaps hiding um, in the forest or in the garden somewhere else, peering through some bushes and looking on as Judas was painting the target for them. Then they knew who they were after. And Judas did this with a sign of affection. What a horrible stab in the back. What a horrible violation of a kiss. And then we see that he was, as soon as he was arrested, they found their target and they took him into they captured Jesus and arrested him, and his disciples were afraid, and they fled. They left him at that time. Peter must have trailed uh, behind them, found where they took Jesus, and he was in a courtyard outside while Jesus was being put on trial. And even Peter denied Jesus at this time. We know that story well. Three times he denied even knowing Jesus, and once with curses. While Peter was busy denying his master in the courtyard outside, Jesus was standing trial before the Sanhedrin. And in there, he was falsely accused, bound, spit upon, mocked, blindfolded, and beaten. Now, not at this point by the Roman soldiers. These were his own priests. These were priests that God, and Jesus is God, had appointed to lead the people in worship of him. So Jesus' own priests, appointed by him for worship, were beating him and falsely accusing him, spitting on him, mocking him. These same priests, uh, supposedly finding Jesus guilty of blasphemy at this trial, 
cried out against him the judgment, He deserves death. So then the Jewish leaders, though they wanted to see Jesus die for his supposed blasphemy, they didn't have the authority to put Jesus to death, being under Roman occupation at that time. So they brought Jesus to the Roman governor Pilate to see what he would do. Uh, Pilate's custom was to release one prisoner of the Jews to them, to the people, at the Feast of Pass Passover. And he put before them this choice, I can release to you Barabbas, this notorious murderer here, or I can release to you Jesus, who I don't personally see any fault in. And the Jewish people, um, who were incited to do this by the Jewish leaders, cried asking that Barabbas be released instead of Jesus, a notorious murderer. Pilate then asked them what he wanted them to do with, with just Jesus. And, and this is the high point of the rejection Jesus faced by his own people. The, the Jews cried out in response to Pilate, demanding Jesus' execution. It says in Matthew 27, Pilate said to them, What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him! And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting out all the more, saying, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, it says in John 19 at this point, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. This is incredibly intense and overwhelming rejection that Jesus is undergoing here from his own people, the people who he had, he had loved for generation after generation, who had, he had set apart to be his own special people, and here they are rejecting him to the utmost. We're just getting started with the pains that Jesus endured in this time. But already we see that we're miles beyond what any of us are enduring right now or have really ever endured in our life. Who has re faced rejection on this scale like Jesus? And it's amazing to think, isn't it, that Jesus in all this time did not open his mouth, not in complaint, not in defense, not in cursing. Not, Jesus was silent and calm. So we read next that Pilate handed Jesus over to his soldiers to be crucified. And what do the soldiers do? How do they treat Jesus? In Matthew 27, verse 27, we read, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around, cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked, and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. So the soldiers are just brutal with Jesus. They make him play the clown for his, their own amusement. They thought it was funny that Jesus was considered a king, and that's 
supposedly why he had been put on trial. This puny little man who Isaiah says had no form or majesty that we should love him or be attracted to him. This pathetic, poor man, seemingly with no power, is so hated by his own people, is called a king, and they, they have fun. They make fun of Jesus brutally. They strip him naked. They put on him the trappings of a king to make fun of him, a scarlet robe, uh, a reed made out of a stick or to be a scepter, and a crown of thorns. Now, I was walking a couple of days ago, and I found a thorn tree. I had my eye out for it because I wanted to have an illustration of thorns to, to show us. And I found this really intense-looking bunch of thorns on a small tree between Pastor Max's house and my house, or and, and the church house on the road. There's a couple of little trees like this. Keep your eye out for them. I don't really know what species of thorn this is. It may be, um, it may be honey locust. I don't know. But anyway, uh, Jesus had a, a crown of thorns made for him. We don't know the species that they used. Um, but I did look up pictures of acacia trees, which have thorns, and that's a common tree in the scriptures that's throughout that region that Jesus was in, Palestine. And they look very similar to this, really intense, brutal thorns. They put those on Jesus' head. And they bowed down before him, mocking him as if they were giving him honor and worship. And then they took the stick in his hand and they beat him over the head. Next, they made Jesus carry his own cross to Calvary. And it was customary for those who were being crucified uh, in Rome at that time to carry their own cross to the place of execution. Jesus was able to go some of the way on his own, we read, but presumably was not able to make it all the way, probably because of the beatings he had already endured, or maybe because he was just not strong or fit having not eaten or because of his suffering, whatever it was, Jesus couldn't make it all the way. And they, they forced a man in the crowd named Simon the Cyrene or of Cyrene to carry it for him. And when they finally got to the place of execution, Golgotha, the place of the skull, Jesus was crucified there. That means he was hung on a tree or on a, a cross of wood to die. I want to read for you a brief description of crucifixion um, written by the, an Anglican minister from the past who, who also wrote the hymn Rock of Ages, which we love and sing. Augustus Toplady was his name, kind of a funny name. But he wrote this about crucifixion. He said, The ancient manner of crucifixion was this. The cross was laid on the ground, and the person to be crucified was laid upon it at full length and with his arms extended. If he was to be only tied to the cross, so some were tied to the cross with ropes and left to hang, that would prolong their life and the excruciating pain of their death. Uh, if, if they were only to be tied to the cross, the executioner stood by with cords. If the criminal was to be nailed to the cross, they stood ready with nails and hammers. The nails were never drove directly through the palms of the hands. We see this in lots of pictures, like the, the nail going right through the palm of the hand. But he says that they were never done that way. They were put towards the bottom of the hand, near the wrist, both because of the sensation of pain that is there more exquisite, and that the hands also might be the better able to bear the weight of the body. So it's probably here in the wrist where there's this uh, both 
um, bones that could the nail could go between and hold hold the uh, weight of the body, but also there's a, a, a bunch of, of nerve endings there, so more excruciatingly painful. The feet of the criminal were generally crossed one over the other, so that one nail went through them both. When this was done, the cross was raised from the ground with ropes, and the foot of it was fixed in a deep hole dug in the earth. So probably what happened, if this is, if this is accurate, is there's a deep hole, the cross is out of the hole, and they lift it up with ropes, and then they drop the whole thing down in the hole. And you can just imagine the excruciating pain that that would um, cause in a body that was, especially one that was nailed to a cross. And this may be the way, uh, the uh, ex ex explanation for a prophecy concerning Jesus, where it talks about um, all my bones are out of joint. It, likely it would have resulted in the disjoining of many bones in the body. So this form of horribly gruesome and painful death could last for hours, maybe even days. Um, it depends, I think, probably on whether they were nailed or tied, but it could go on for a long time, and it was intended to be a very painful form of death, but also a very humiliating form of death, because it was at a public highway or a crossroads or entrance into the city where everybody would pass by and see. The those who were being crucified were very often stripped naked, so just completely vulnerable and left there in their shame. And people would pass by and scoff at them and mock them, um, and it was just awful. Jesus hung there for three hours in this condition before he died. The cause of death precisely is unknown. He might have died of asphyxiation. He might have died from blood loss, from his head and his, the wounds from the nails, from the beatings that he had received. He could have died from a heart attack. We just don't know, but he did die. When the soldiers came around to speed at the Jews' request, the, the end of the condemned that were hanging there by breaking their legs, Jesus' legs were left undone uh, or unbroken, having already given up the ghost. And that fulfilled a prophecy spoken of him in Psalm 34. God keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. These are the physical, most of the physical sufferings that we read of concerning Jesus in this time. But let's not forget the even more dreadful spiritual sufferings that he was going through. As we sang earlier in our service in the hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, Many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. So this is referring to the inward sense that Jesus had, certainly, of God's wrath being poured out upon him. This wasn't just happening to him by chance. It was God sacrificing him, as an offering for sin, transferring to his son the, the, the guilt of his rebellious people and pouring out his wrath against their sin on Jesus. His beloved father looked upon him as if Jesus 
his beloved son were an, an enemy, a, a, a wicked man. He, as it were, pointed his bow at Jesus and poured out his cup of wrath upon him. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus to be sin on our behalf. And Jesus had an acute sense of this being made sin. He felt the outpouring of God's displeasure, of his wrath, of his hatred of sin as he hung there on the cross. And he was so filled with this sense that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's one thing for Jesus to have been rejected, forsaken by his own people. It's another thing still to be rejected by his beloved Father and God. Well, these are very sobering and awful things to remember today. Why do we call them good? Well, we call them good because this is good news for us. This is good news for sinners. This is good news for the whole world. This is good news. Jesus' death, though it's tragic and sad and horrifying to look at and to think about and to comprehend, it is life-giving. It is life from the dead for those who believe. If you are in Jesus by faith, if you have trusted in him, you, because of his work on the cross, you have already been judged. All of your wickedness has been covered by his blood. You have already undergone all of the wrath that God has for your sin. It has already been spent and swallowed up by Jesus on the cross. He has paid for it, atoned for it, satisfied it. All of your past, present, and future sins, Jesus has paid for and satisfied God's wrath concerning them. If you're in Jesus, that's true. And you're no longer under God's wrath. and often do, and maybe even right now are, under God's fatherly discipline in your life, I think it's fair to say that all of us in this nation and in the world are under God's discipline. All God's people, the whole church in the world that suffers in this time of quarantine, to whatever degree, have an opportunity to consider God's discipline of us and what is he trying to teach us and what is he accomplishing in us through trial. But that's not to be under the wrath of God. None of God's people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus are any longer under God's wrath, but have him as their father who loves them and works all things together for their good. All your sins, if you're in Christ, are paid for and done. They are fully and eternally punished. God's just wrath against sin is completely satisfied, quenched by Jesus on the cross. That's if you believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, then you are still in your sins. And you are under the wrath 
and curse of God for your sin. And you are still awaiting a day when you will forever bear in your body and your soul, just like Jesus did on the cross, the outpouring of God's wrath and hatred of your sin. Jesus paid for the sins of his people. Those who believe are his people. He did not pay for your sins if you do not believe, if you refuse to come to him and to be counted among his people and to receive from him the forgiveness that he offers. My advice to you, if that's you, is you should flee to Jesus. Today, right now, you should come to Jesus and humble yourself, plead with him for mercy, and receive this promise of forgiveness and satisfaction and justification in him. Today, this Good Friday, you have a wonderful opportunity to do just that. If you're listening to this, this is an opportunity that God is giving you to repent of your sins and be washed and cleansed of them. The Bible tells us to believe in Jesus now, today. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I encourage you, I plead with you, please, don't harden your heart today, but be soft towards the Lord and, and this reminder of your sin and of your need of a Savior. And come to Jesus to be cleansed. He will receive you. He says, if anyone comes to me, I will in no wise cast them out. He will receive you. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you for your sins. So flee to the cross of Christ today. If you know Jesus and trust in him, what should your response to this message be? Well, there's lots of things we could say. But one I want to stress today is don't use the grace of God as an excuse or justification for your sin. That is such a violation of what Jesus did on the cross. It's very easy to use God's grace as an excuse for sin and to, when we're facing temptation to say to ourselves in our conscience or in our mind or our heart, well, God will forgive me. God's a forgiving God. He'll forgive me. I don't have to worry. But that, uh, Jesus did not come so that you could say that to yourself and give in to sin. It's exactly a contradiction of his word. In Titus 2, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men for this purpose, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Don't use the grace of God in Christ Jesus, this incredible gift of forgiveness, as an excuse for your sin. Rather be sobered as you look upon the sufferings of Jesus today and as you meditate on them. Be sobered about your sin. Look at the price that was paid. As the song said, mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Humble yourselves anew today before the cross and confess your sins and your continuing need of God's mercy, patience, and forgiveness for you. And then, walk in the joy and the freedom that Christ purchased for you and the obedience that that freedom and joy is meant to produce. Give yourself to good works 
and rejoicing in God's kindness. That's the best way to show honor as a believer, as someone who's washed, is to be, if you're a dad, to be a good dad. If you're a husband, to be a good husband. If you're a worker, to be an, an honest and fair and, and diligent worker for your boss. To be a godly man and to live godly, righteously, and soberly in this age. Finally, all of us should be amazed at Jesus. Think of his incredible obedience to God. Think of his will. He knew everything that was going to unfold. He could, he could conceive of what it would feel like to be rejected, to suffer, to be mocked, to be beaten, to hang on a cross in agony. He, he dreaded it because he knew. And yet, think of his will that was so submissive to his father and how he was willing to go all the way to the end. Those whom he loved, he loved them to the end, is what it says. And it's such a wonderful truth about Jesus. He loved us to the end. He saw it through. He accomplished the, the great and terrible work that God had given him to do for us. What a costly sacrifice Jesus made for our sins. God says, or Paul says in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, that because of the obedience of Christ, that he was willing to be obedient even to death, death on a cross. God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We should give him glory today, this day, this Good Friday. We should worship and adore our Savior for his great sacrifice and his love. What a tremendous work he accomplished. And what wonderful, joyful, incredibly good benefits come to us from it. He gives life to us through his death. His blood cleanses us from every sin and we can live in that forgiveness evermore. And amen. Well, it's customary on Good Friday to offer prayers for unbelieving peoples. This has been our tradition here at a church at, at Trinity Reformed Church now for a number of years. I think it probably comes from the Roman Catholic Church, this tradition which uh, I don't know how ancient it is. It may have come about prior to the Reformation, and so therefore uh, be um, something that we can just say is, is unequivocally good, because it was the church that produced it. Either way, it is um, a wonderful prayer that I have adapted a little bit for our evangelical use. Would you please join with me as we offer prayers for all unbelieving peoples this Good Friday, that they would come to faith in Jesus and repent of their sins, and especially for God's ancient chosen people, Israel. Let's pray together. O oh, merciful God, you have made all men, and you hate nothing that you have made, nor do you desire the death of a sinner, but rather that he should be converted and live. Have mercy, therefore, we pray, on all who reject the true gospel of your Son, on pagans and atheists, on Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, 
on Roman Catholics and all who in their pride like to make much of their ability, of their work. And would you have mercy also on many of us so-called evangelical Christians who have grown increasingly ashamed of your words in recent years, who hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. Have mercy, Lord. Knowing, Father, that you resist the proud but give grace to the humble, we ask today that you would give the gift of humility to all these people. Cause them to see their depravity as you have allowed us to see our own and lead them to repentance through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our only hope of salvation. Now, Almighty and Eternal Father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we especially appeal to you this day on behalf of your ancient people Israel. Do not cast them off forever, O Lord, but look on them now in your mercy. Remove from them their blindness and hardness of heart, and may the time quickly come when you cause the Jews to recognize Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah, uniting them to him by faith and grafting them in again unto the rich root of the olive tree, your church. O oh Lord, let it be in our day that you do these things, that we may see it and rejoice, knowing that your kingdom is very near. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.